Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, you know, financing, all of the good stuff. We're going to talk about, you know, their journey, how they got started, you know, especially with production, how to think about product versus technology, also about consumer de demographics and why they may choose you and your product or even culture and how to create, you know, something that is very much mission driven. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Christoph Jenny. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Alexandra. So originally born in Switzerland, in the middle of the mountains. So give us a walk through uh, memory lane. How was life growing up? Hey, uh, I used to literally take uh, my bobsled uh, to school in winter. Uh, so it was a lot of fun uh, growing up. I think I grew up on a playground, essentially. So I've been ever, uh, yeah, close to the mountains, enjoy them a lot and have a very deep connection uh, to where I'm from. Now, in your case, how, how do you get into numbers and economics and stuff like that? Hey, uh, ultimately, I don't know. Uh, I think I didn't know uh, what I wanted to study, if it was ar um, architecture uh, or something else. I chose business, um, was not blown away by the marketing concepts and everything, but I uh, got really into economics and then focused on this. I um, was really astonished that you can try to build models to explain reality and learn from this, especially because you always, you're always wrong. And so you learn a lot. And I really like this like uh, loop of uh, trying to predict something, be wrong and trying to find out why I was wrong. Now, in your case, you know, it's been, you know, quite a sequence of events when it comes to the professional career. And the way that uh, you combined it with places like Credit Suisse or KPMG before you actually went to a family office, you know, that changed, you know, the way that uh, that you go about things or the way that you think about things, you know, which was a really nice, you know, sequence, you know, before you got into the entrepreneurial journey. But I guess, you know, out of being in the corporate world at a company like Credit Suisse or KPMG, which are massive businesses, what did you learn, you know, there? In my career in the beginning, I said, I think I came very much from the economic side and I thought uh, the truth is always in the numbers. And I think I found out very fast that uh, just getting to the numbers and uh, having the same understanding of what the numbers are is very important. But then it's a lot about culture and team that you can build around yourself. And so I went to, into a lot of the management interviews and expected to find out what the true numbers are. But instead, I found out if it's a good uh, operator, an inspiring operator, um, somebody that can rally a team, can rally for a vision or a mission which then I sort of found out, I think, over the course of my career is much, much more important. Obviously, you need to have good unit economics. If the unit economics don't work out, it's difficult to scale. But uh, beyond that, I think it's a lot on the team and culture side. So I think that was probably the most fruitful experience. Did you see any patterns there? Obviously, you probably spoke and interviewed a lot of operators and, and engaged with many of them. And I'm wondering if you developed any type of pattern there where you were able to really quickly differentiate, you know, good operators from bad operators? Hey, no, I think ultimately, no, not that I also don't have the perfect track record, but um, I think what I found out is this strong correlation. I think you need very strong conviction, um, but you need to be capable to listen at key moments. So I think it's this really nuanced thing of like having a strong conviction for what you believe in, because 
10,000 people will tell you like, why don't you do it like that? Or why do it? Why don't you change it? Or you should change this or that. And I think to, if you would listen to everybody along the way, I think you would uh, dilute your company, your product way too much. So I think you need to really know what you want and believe in it to like to a fault. At the same time, I think there's like every now and then a crucial moment in a company where you need to listen. And uh, I think finding that balance is what made people really, really strong. And that listening, I think, externals, be it from investors, board members, but also internally from key uh, employees. And I think this is uh, what I find uh, also for myself uh, to be is where I grow every year, where to learn like where to listen and uh, where to just show conviction and, uh, uh, and believe in yourself and your product and your company and your team. Now, where you say where to listen, what kind of listening is that? What does that listening look like? Um, I think it's very different. I love to update my information set as I go through the week, the month, the year. And um, so I think it's sometimes like small comments, but you all of a sudden they get you thinking and why are we doing it like that? Um, and then you start to think and then you're like, hey, it's actually a pretty good point. Um, I get what they said. And so I think for me, that kind of listening is the best when I can try to understand why somebody said something. Uh, get a good feedback, uh, like sort of out of the box, something I, like a blind spot and uh, then be like, hey, cool. Um, this is a huge opportunity that I should act on or this is a huge risk and I need to find a way to mitigate it. Now, it sounds like for you, really transitioning into the investment side, you know, was pivotal. So walk us through how did that transition happen and, and how was that, you know, the immediate kind of thing that needed to happen before you venturing into becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, actually, I started out as an entrepreneur. So I had, uh, with 16, I had my own uh, first uh, web shop. Uh, so I think I always had that in me. I think what I've learned is really this uh, sort of, that for the long term, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And uh, you need to be extremely consistent. And uh, so I think this is what I learned and what my transition was when I thought it's, it's all about getting the deal done. Um, when you sort of just advise based on deals, uh, that's what you focus on, right? Get the deal done and then it's the next project. Um, when you run a business, especially uh, like uh, for, for a family, family office that invests long term, um, it's very much about the value you create over the long term and about managing those assets and making sure you have the right team, the right people uh, to build things for the long run. So I think it's this long run view and uh, how to build Teams where I, for sure, learned a lot of things from great uh, operators I came across during that time. So at the family office, what were some of the things that you were doing? Hey, in the beginning, it was uh, simple investment uh, work, uh, sourcing deals, finding deals. And uh, at the end, it got then rather operating uh, as I jumped in on a portfolio of restaurant and beverage brands and uh, really got into the nitty gritty of uh, day-to-day operations and uh, so I think this was a really good sandbox to learn a lot uh, what like uh, what the outside world is like. And so I think if you're in, working as an investment manager or in the investment side, I think you oftentimes only see very small parts of the business. But day to day, taking along people for the restaurant side, it was uh, line cooks, line chefs. Um, I worked in the restaurants and like trying to just understand like how 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 that part of the business works, I think is something you just appreciate a lot. And that's where I think also I learned a lot from uh, great operators that really understood their businesses ground up in some cases, built them from the ground up. And then I think this appreciation for understanding a business beyond the numbers and the data, but understanding it from the ground up 
think this is what I start to really value. Now, in your case, what would you say were some of the things that you needed to see in order to take action with Planted? Because, you know, as being part of that investment experience and journey in your professional career, that's essentially what exposed you to the problem and got you excited enough to take action. So so what were some of the things that needed to happen from ide- from ideation all the way to incubation and, and launch of Planted? Yeah, so I think like on the restaurant uh, side, when we operated the restaurants, uh, we looked at the alternative proteins uh, quite early on and I uh, wasn't blown away by taste or ingredients, uh, depending on how you look at it or both in the end. And uh, as somebody that lived uh, on and off vegetarian or vegan, I think it was uh, particularly like, yeah, sad because I was excited, but at the same time, like it didn't, I think, go in the right direction because I believe uh, that the consumer dimension of health is extremely important. And that for sure, the early products, I think it has gotten a lot better since, which I think is very important. Um, it wasn't, didn't blow me away. And then one of my good friends uh, challenged me on this and said, like, why don't you have, uh, out of all people, why don't you have alternative proteins on the menu? And I told him what I told you. And uh, then uh, he introduced me to his uh, cousin, who's just finishing up the PhD um, in food science at ETH here in Switzerland. It's one of the top five food schools, I'd say, globally. And uh, so, yeah, taking, taking it then from there, really product ground up and trying some of the samples they had and being really blown away by the product quality, but more than about the vision we started developing rather fast of the same t- at the time there, it was, everything was about, it needs to be the same as animal meat, uh, very comparative. And I think we really started with this, Hey, we want to be better. If we want people to switch, the experience needs to be better. And we defined for us very quickly, what still holds us for us true today, it's taste, uh, the environment, consumer health and price, uh, where we want to be better at. So I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being planted? How do you guys make money? Uh, we make money by uh, selling products uh, to consumers through retail. Uh, we directly deliver into food service. Food service is a large part of our business. And we do have a D2C business uh, for the loyalists and the enthusiasts. So we believe really about increasing the maximum of touch points we have with consumers. And we want to be there where animal meat is consumed. And what about the, uh, the journey of getting started with production? How, how did that look like? Yes, I think this was rather special. Um, we do need a lot of equipment. Uh, so we would be like, as we are, a CapEx business. And uh, I think uh, if you don't have a product or if you don't have a market yet or a proof of product market fit, it's very difficult to fundraise. And uh, so we had the privilege of uh, using a pilot plant at ETH, the school we we're spun out of uh, officially. And uh, really, yeah, scaling production in a very uh, R&D-driven environment. Uh, we proved the plant, uh, built it up there, and uh, shipped literally uh, out of the city center of Zurich. And if you know the city center of Zurich, you don't want to do that from a logistical point of view. It was a nightmare. Every truck was delayed because they were standing in traffic. But um, it was uh, gave us the opportunity. The CapEx would have been probably five or six million at the time to start. And uh, we had this in a facility ready to go is a huge privilege. And uh, I think we wouldn't be here if not for that. So then how was also the, the, when you guys thought about like engineering the operation, like how did you think about product versus technology, for example? Yeah, I think already back then, and I think it hasn't stopped yet. People talk a lot about technology. So they talk about the features of the technology and the benefits and why one technology is better than the other. 
And I think from like what I've seen, and I think it was very sure that it's going to be about product. So ultimately, what consumers buy is not technology, they buy a product. Uh, I think it's this uh, famous uh, Steve Jobs uh, speech I love, and I think a lot of people love, it's this megahertz discussion versus a product, a computer. And so this always stuck with me, and I was sure, like, I have amazing co-founders on the technical side, um, but let's not get carried away on technology. And there's very likely, it's not going to be one technology that's going to be right, but there's going to be combination of technologies that is right for our product. So we focus very much on what we believe that the product should be. And going back to these four pillars, taste, um, health, uh, environment, and uh, price, and looking at the technologies that best fit that. And so we chose a technology stack, uh, getting a little bit technical, but we structured the proteins and we then uh, transformed them through biotechnology or fermentation, if you want, uh, into amazing, juicy and delicious cuts of meat, uh, be that small pieces or full steaks. And really finding this sweet spot of pure efficiency, which you have on this structuring side with the, let's say, added capabilities you get from biotech and sort of really the intersection of where product costs can be with what the maximum consumer benefit is. And I believe many companies, uh, especially in this sort of hype cycle, miss this totally, where they just built amazing products, but they didn't scale. And we said from the beginning, like, we want to scale. We want to, like, food, it's brutal scale. It's about the last cent. Uh, we once, like, had an early negotiation with a retailer, and we said, oh, finally, we discussed about one cent. They laughed and said, we typically discuss the fourth cent after the comma. Uh, so, uh, or the fourth decimal after the comma. So, um, to that extent, food uh, is ex- a lot about efficiency, and um, I think there you really need to know what your product should be, so that you can drive that efficiency. Because if you don't know what your product is, but you have a technology, it's really difficult to optimize for efficiency. So, I think this product-first approach. I think. Uh, Companies, like I said, I admire what uh, Apple did uh, with the Apple II. I think they put it all together and it, it led to this massive spike. I admire what uh, Elon Musk did with Tesla. I think they're also the first ones to put it together. It's not the first car and it's not the first electric car. It's not the second electric car, but I don't know, maybe the 10th or 20th, but they got it right. They understood what they need from a battery pack. They knew what they understood, what they need from a consumer experience. From the, for the driver, it was a lot about the acceleration because before every car was boring and they made a car which accelerated much faster than most gasoline-powered vehicles. So I think it's really understanding what this consumer benefit is that you can deliver better than the other products out there. And I think that's why I believe we do not often enough talk about product. And it's very simple to compare technologies, but Understanding what the product USP is and what you deliver to consumers is incredibly important. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And and as you're talking about that, at what point did you guys achieve product market fit? That moment where you're like, my God, you know, I think we got it right. Hey, always and never, or very early and never. Um, so I think from the beginning, and so we did a, we wanted to prove out that we found the product and we were like surprised because we started taking home very early on. We, we decided, or we took home development samples and we cooked them at home and our families loved them. And we were really surprised we did this, I think, like after a couple of uh, weeks of working um, with the product. And then we went to the middle of the train station in Zurich. It's a large hall and you get to demo product and we, you need a technical feature to demo product. So we had this voting button, which was the technical feature, and we had consumers vote. And we had 160 people try the product, 157 um, voted that they would buy it. And uh, three didn't. And so we thought we listened to the 157 and just go with it. So we took a very simple approach, kind of a craft beer approach. We went restaurant to restaurant and we just sold it. Uh, We just looked at what the restaurant said, um, uh, what their feedback was. And funny enough, like we had a really good success quota of like just selling the product into uh, chefs uh, who loved working with the product as it was, um, we did not have like any, any flavoring component in there. So we did not add any aroma or so. So it was a very well to work with product that truly reacted to how chefs prepared it. And they just loved it. So within a couple of weeks, uh, even before we had officially set up the company, we sold the first uh, product and uh, yeah, we took it from there. And and when it comes to also ramping things up and, and getting the right people here to help you guys, how did you think about to building a mission-driven culture? Yeah, I think ultimately, I think we, I think mission-driven culture for us is very simple because people see the cause immediately when they walk in through the door. Um, there's people that are very motivated by the climate. There are people very motivated for animal welfare, people who care for both. Um, so I think this is very simple. I think what is actually more challenging or what the big challenge is to have like a performance driven team and that like delivers um, beyond the mission alignment, because I think the mission and the alignment is rather easy. And so we always say, come, come for the mission, stay for the team, stay for the culture. And I think it's achieving this part of like very diverse backgrounds. So we have a factory uh, production employees on the one side. And on the other side, we have uh, PhDs who work all day in a lab and uh, work on maybe like a lab uh, sample or experiment for, I don't know, a month. And so it's very, very culturally extremely different people. Uh, we're also expanding in Europe. So we have very different geographies, very different cultures. So it's finding this common denominators of how we work actually together 
and having fun in the day-to-day. Because I think if you don't have fun in the day-to-day and you're just aligned for mission, I don't think you have enough fuel to go for. I think mission gets you somewhere and it gets you through maybe the tough times. But on a daily basis, I think you need to have fun in what you do. And so I think it's rather like building a performance-driven culture where we have fun in, 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 on, the, on a daily basis in what we do. Now, when it comes to people too, how do you guys go about investors? How much capital have you guys raised to date, first and foremost? Uh, we raised a total of about 115 million uh, to date. And what has been the journey of raising that money and how did you make sure that you got the right people for the right reasons? I think we we always believed like, look, we're here for the vision. So we, we need to deliver the vision, but we need to have... Uh, investors who truly buy into the vision. And so when we first said we believe that we need to invest into our own factory, like I'd say about um, for the seed round, about 95% of all uh, institutional investors were out, as they said, like, it's crazy. Uh, we, sh- we showed like uh, the use of funds, and I think we showed about two thirds is going to go to CapEx and uh, one third is going, or 20% and is going to R&D and the uh, uh, business development, we do a little bit with the gross margin we have uh, on the product. And so this wasn't, um, let's say, the most popular message, but we really believe that it's the right thing. And so I think we had quite a strong selection from the beginning. And a lot of family offices uh, backing us in the beginning uh, or smaller niche funds uh, that believed in us. And we looked very closely that there's nobody on the cap table who like has a fixed exit uh, date because we believed if we do true innovation, true tech, it can go very fast, very wrong if you have like a fund that needs out in five years um, or even less uh, if they're like maybe maybe more mature in their investment cycle. So we really focus that people like don't have any constraint whatsoever when they need to get out. Uh, and, and then also, what were some of the other uh, things that you learned around the fundraising process? Because, you know, one thing was very interesting how you you know, before you were on the other side of the table, you were on the investment side, and now you are on the other side of the table, on the operator side. So how do you think that having now both perspectives, you know, really helped you in navigating the process and how did you go about it? I think it helped a little bit on to know what to expect, like especially like in terms of like due diligence, et cetera. I think we were always prepared quite decently. And um, so we we never started to have uh, like an official, like uh, we. First of all, we never ran, ran a process. So that's maybe like my number one thing. So like you're racing all the time. And I think this is true. And so that's something I've taken away. We never did like a particular fundraising round. So whenever somebody was like, oh, I guess you're not racing. We're like, hey, we're always uh, getting to know people. And we'd rather get to know the people before the round than during the round. And so I think we always were almost like sort of preempted or had somebody invest um, before we actually like needed to do do around and I think to create that atmosphere of hey we do have options and we do look for the best fit on investors I think was very important and so I think we never raised like on a particular moment where we went out we made a structured process but we always had like leads we talked with people and then leveraged getting one term sheet to get a couple of other term sheets so I think as a founder that like a good thing to do and I think think of it like you're like recruiting your most important employees. Why would you do it like in a very hectic environment, everybody at once and all of that? You want to get to know people. And so I think we were always chose, I think, a good level of honesty and transparency 
getting to know people and getting to see how they react. Um, I typically brought the challenge or something I was thinking about with and just looked how they reacted. So there were like people who, who, who I could see kind of like, I like the way they think about the problem. I like the way they discuss with me a problem. That's somebody I think that could bring value to me. And so I think uh, we always focused on that. I think else, what else it took with, yeah, never, never start any, sign any term sheet or whatsoever uh, that gives exclusivity if you don't have to. So uh, try to keep it competitive um, because especially I think in the current market environment, you never know what to expect. So I think having a good, let's say reasonable competition gives you also a bit of protection. And then, yeah, never start to like uh, go out and talk to people without having like a data room and everything prepared because you don't want in the last minute to prepare a data room. So essentially, I think we almost keep a more or less live data room uh, at all times. We just file things in the data room uh, as we go. And I think this makes it so much easier. It's like uh, uh, if you need to search all the tax receipts in the last moment, it's also like a pain. So if you continuously work on that, I think that helps. That's amazing. Now, a vision is obviously a big one, you know, whether, you know, it comes to employees, to customers, to investors. So if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Planted is fully realized, what does that world look like? Um, it's a it's a world uh, where alternative proteins have gone mainstream. So we see our job in the markets we are, and we focus rather on less than more markets, um, that we have truly uh, a mainstream product that can reach, let's say, 30, 40, 50% of the consumer base. And so I think that's the world I want to be in, like alternative proteins, uh, adoption rates by country vary. It's between one to maybe 3% on the higher end uh, for the whole category. So I want this at 10, 15%. So that's the world I want to wake up where like it really starts to get mainstream. I think that's what, where I think I said like in the beginning, like yes, product market fit, we had it quite early, but also I think we still haven't found it fully yet because we're not yet the mainstream product. So we need to keep working on becoming fully mainstream. Amazing. Now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine, Let's say I bring you back to 2018, 2019, where you're starting to look into, you know, this. And let's say you had the opportunity of having a sit down with your younger self and you're able to share with that younger self one piece of advice before launching the business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I probably would prevent myself to go back because I probably would tell myself, uh, don't do it. Uh, no, <laughs> I think it's uh, like, I think the best thing is you don't know. So I think you always think like, uh, I'm just about to figure it out and we're just about to get into cruising mode. But I think if you truly push you, until you reach a cruising mode, I think it takes some time. So I think uh, the best thing is probably not knowing. What I would tell myself, I think like it's taking time to write things down. So I think what I started uh, maybe a little bit too late is like writing down like the vision into like a memo style kind of thing. I think it's worked more of pitch decks and stuff. but. I think especially internally for the board, maybe, uh, but more for the leadership team, like writing down really like step by step, what do we do? I think is really, really valuable because as a founder, I think you tend to like just see the end. And you're just like, let's just do it. But um, the steps that it takes in between, if you write it down, you kind of notice like, hey, missing maybe one or two steps in between. And so I think the most valuable thing I started uh, is really writing down and very close, tight second, I think, is really, really take time for key hires. So 
really challenge these people and uh, make sure you have like very consistent interviewing with very consistent questions uh, where you really flush out why they want to join, what are their capabilities, what have they delivered in the past, do they fit the culture, etc. So I think it's these two things probably, which have both to do a little bit with taking time. Amazing. Well, hey, well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. I guess the last question is for the people that um, are listening and that are really inspired and that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Hey, um, I always uh, love if you interact with us as a brand. So we're Eat Planted uh, on Instagram. And uh, if they want to say hi, we have an open and uh, uh, transparent production facility. So my office is right uh, by the production. Uh, Just come on. Uh, come and knock and uh, we'll show you uh, around with what we do. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, thank you so much, Christophe, for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an absolute honor to have you with us. Thanks. Likewise. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.